I am passionate about teaching this material because I think that we have to understand history to understand what's happening today. Pork tenderloins, only $3.29. And how did that become the way I experience church now? Hey, listen, you know, you've got the creation, we've got um, Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got all these things that have happened. We're now part of that story. Because to me, the <laughs> This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Ranks Jr., along with producer Wes. We're glad you're here. Hey, everybody, glad you're here. This is Frank. You have found it. You have found it. History Through the Eyes of Faith, episode 54. I'm here with producer Wes, and I'm also here with Angie Ferris. Angie is the reason, the content, the 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 value that you're getting. That's the value that you're getting today in all episodes is Angie's value that she brings. Angie, we're glad you're here. Thank you, Frank. It's good to be here. I feel like that's a little bit too much pressure. No, it's not. Pre- I don't. That's not pressure. It's just fact. I mean. They're they're not getting a lot of value, I don't think. I from think they my get some entertainment well, value. Not entertainment, but that I don't know what value that. I mean, it could well, bring value. It's valuable to be entertained. Yeah, it is. It's a nice little Sp- distraction. Speaking of something that just recently happened to me only hours ago that I was very entertained by that added value to my life. And I don't know what it means. I think it's a sign of something. It's only happened to me. I can maybe say it's only happened to me three times in my life. Potentially four in okay. the span of 53 years. So something happened to you today that has yeah. only happened to you three, potentially four in your entire life. Yeah. Okay. That's big setup. To the point that I, re, I re, okay. So I had to go to Kroger. Well, I had to go to the grocery store. That's okay. not the thing that happened. Okay. <laughs> I've done that more than four times in my life. I had to go to the grocery store. And as I'm pulling into the grocery store parking lot, I'm like, Yes. And I see in a distance something that I've only seen three or four times in person in my life. It's happening again. But this thing is is moving away from me. So I have to circumvent my pattern. I I, I kind of went maybe 30 miles an hour through the Kroger parking lot to get around to the other side so that I could see and witness and be a part of this event. And it is and was the Oscar Mayer hot dog truck car thing. You know the thing that you see that goes down the highway? Mm-hmm. It's a big, huge hot dog on a bun. Oh. And the car is a bun. Like, it's something that you don't go to the store and pick up one of these things. I don't know how many exist. It is a car. It's a vehicle. You've not seen them? Yes. Yeah, it's a vehicle. It's a huge I don't know if dog. I've seen it in person. I know the, I've the, seen pictures. There you go. I've seen it in person maybe four times in my life, and it happened today. What was it doing there? I don't know. I, I, I had, it was leaving, <laughs> so, so I had to drive past it and circle around to get to where I could get that. That has to, we have <laughs> to get that to our social media person so we can have that picture up there. That is so weird looking isn't that amazing that is so gross but look <laughs> look like look that is just look <laughs> it's a video of the hot dog going down the street yeah doesn't even look like a bun 
What well, is that about? It's amazing. Like, what does that mean? I put it on my Instagram today. I'm like, our paths have crossed. What does this mean? Like, what does this symbolize? Like, you know, when you walk under a ladder, it's bad luck. Or if you break a mirror, it's bad luck. So everybody go over to our, what do we say it is? Kofi page. And you can comment on that page and you tell us what it means. What does it mean? Is it Kofi though? No, it's Kofi because it rhymes with no fee. That's ah, how I can remember okay. now. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, we've so, been, we've been messed up. On so, that. what it's does Kofi. it mean when you cross paths with the Oscar Meyer Wienermobile? What does it mean for Frank in particular? Yeah, like uh, we want. Well, we they, want would some... ask, they would ask the question. Well, what has happened to you in the past when that's happened? And I don't really remember. I just remember thinking, I am blessed today that I. I have witnessed this. Maybe it's a reminder of blessings in my life. <laughs> okay. That might be what it is. You know how some people see a cardinal or and they go, oh, that's <laughs> someone from, you know, that has passed on and they're visiting me. <laughs> I, Giant oh, hot dog oh, Paw Paw. driving down on the street. Papa, I miss you. That looks like it's squished <laughs> down on a little yellow Every something. time the Wienermobile goes by, <laughs> I remember how I, I miss my uncle. My uncle, (laughs) Walter. All right. So that I wanted to mention that. That's pretty cool. We're bringing you some value now. Yes. The other thing that I wanted to say about episode 54, and I'm being a little, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm being a little vulnerable sharing this. I could keep it to myself because it's, you know, some things mean more to you when you just keep them to yourself. Yeah. And once they're out there, it's like, it's kind of tarnished a little bit. It's just not the same. I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. I mean, because it's not like this is going to be a bad thing to share. It's just, it does mean something to me that I haven't really talked about much. I've talked about it when specific things have happened that here it is. Here's the story. When I was, uh, I probably shouldn't share this. I'm going anyway. So when I was like, uh, I don't know, 12, 11, maybe 10, somewhere in there, 10, 11, 12. I don't think I was in junior high yet. Um, I guess I was. Uh, I played soccer, only sport I ever played. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And only organized sport I ever played. I I wasn't in the football team or the basketball or baseball, any of that. But it was soccer in the 80s, which is not what soccer is today. But I played soccer for a rec league in the 80s, and I wasn't awful. As in the other sports, I was like, oh, well, I don't have to even be on the field. I'm not making a difference. <laughs> Sometimes... <laughs> In soccer, I made a difference, and I was proud of that. And the season that I recognized that I'm making a difference on the team, I was number 54. There you go. So 54 has always kind of been a little thing for me. Like, if I had to pick a number for something, I'd pick 54. And it's been years since I've, like, that's not any of my passcodes or anything like that. But it's just been a number out there that I've just kind of attached to a little, a little bit. It's not like some people's like favorite number whatever it's just very attached to my number it just has a meaning i'll give an example i was going through a very difficult time personally four years ago four and a half five years ago and i went to this like retreat that i didn't really want to go to i would just said hey you should come and i'm like well i'm gonna go and see what happens. It ended up being a very pivotal time, pivotal time and a great retreat that I went to. And I didn't really, I kind of felt lost when I got there and I was checking in and everybody was staying in tents on this camp property. 
uh, two people tents and I was with my son and I thought one of my sons and I thought, uh, okay, well, you know, so it just started, it started, it was just a weird feeling, emotional time. And I don't think much about it. Mr. Ranger, you and your son's tents right down here. And the guy takes me to the tent and it's a really well done kind of retreat where it's almost like glamping, yeah. you know, and that that's yeah. nice. Um, and the, it was tent 54. There you go. And I was like, and that just kind of spoke to me in that moment. Kind of just, oh, okay, I'm going, I'm on the right. It was a little sign that I'm on the right, you know. So occasionally I will, I will uh, see those little markers. But we're in episode 54. It was the whole reason I went down that oh, whole yeah. four minute thing. And this episode's probably not going to be that big a deal. But I just put the number is. Well, between 50- the wiener car and episode 54 it it's might be, be a, a really day. big deal <laughs> it's gonna be a great day maybe maybe the 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 other realm that we're in or maybe the other whatever this karma or whatever you want to call that i know i know you're giving me the look like hey frank what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> maybe the spirit world knew <laughs> worse it's just getting worse the more you talk about it okay maybe the lord knew <laughs> presumptuous but maybe anyway. the lord knew you will be recording episode 54 today i'm going to put in your path the oscar meyer wiener mobile <laughs> to remind you of your blessings my son i think y'all have gotten about all the value you need so for today when we you see the video of the car of the wiener mobile going by you're like i'm touched <laughs> I've been blessed. I can't imagine what that was like in person. Yeah. All right. So here we are. Episode 54. Is it too much? Episode 54. We're here. Um, You're going to have to do a big mental flip right here, folks. Let me tell you. Maybe not. It's your job to tie it back. (laughs) It's your job to tie it back. Here's another little thing. A little number game, I think a 54, tying it back. Maybe this will help transition. Okay. I don't know how it's going to, but the, the, con, the you know, people talk about, I don't know what the term is, but it has something to do with the number nine. Here's a little game you can play. Take any two or three digit number, okay? Add up the digits and then subtract the number nine from that and uh-huh. it's divisible by nine. Always works. Any two-digit number? Yep. You add up the digits, and mm. then you subtract nine by... No, no, you subtract... You subtract... Hold on. Let's just try it out. 156, okay? No, let's do 54. 54 is nine. Mm-hmm. You subtract nine. Mm-hmm. It, it's zero. So, but it's divisible by nine, right? 54 is nine, mm-hmm. which is divisible by nine, by one. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. So pick another number. One twenty-seven. So one two seven. That's twenty. That's ten. Ten. Okay. I don't know the thing. <laughs> it's something you subtract nine and it's divisible by nine. I think that's it. You add up. Okay. All right, listeners, figure it out. It's something yeah. out there. It's for real. All right, West, get on that. The divisible by. <laughs> just put in the divisible by nine thing and see what comes up and come back to us at the end. Okay. All right. So, Geyserick was fifty-one. We're at fifty-four. Yeah. He's going backwards. Fifty-two was Augustine. Yeah, he's going. Fifty-three yeah. was Patrick, Saint Patrick. Which, by the way, on the way from my house to somewhere that I always travel, there's a little 
uh, mailbox with a uh, clover on it. They just have a clover at the end of their mailbox, mm-hmm. like a green clover. I don't know if they're saying, hey, we're Irish or whatever they're saying, but hey, that's the Trinity, y'all. Hey. I want you to know this, but that's the Trinity. So what you're saying is we're Christians. I don't know if you know you're saying that, but that's what that's what it was originally for. Originally. So I learned that about uh, old St. Patrick and uh, can't wait to celebrate him in about 11 months. So we got into the uh, Chalcedon. Is that what you were saying? Council of Chalcedon. The yeah. Council of Chalcedon. I remember those commercials. Do you remember those commercials as a kid? You've already brought them up once before. No, Chalcedon, take yeah. me away. Yeah, you've already brought that up. Remember the whole, wasn't that the? No, that was Calgon. Oh, that was Calgon. Cal, but Ancient you, Chinese secret, Yeah, that's what huh? I'm talking about. Yeah, okay. Chalcedon thinking, was Chalcedon, take me away. It's not Chalcedon. Is it Chalcedon, take me away? It's, I just said it. I just said what it was, and I can't remember. Calgon. No. All right, I've messed it up. What are you looking up? We got to tie it back. Okay, well, we'll tie it back later because that will just take us further away. Okay, okay. But it remi- something you said reminded me of something we talked about in 53 that we said we were going to come back to. Let's do it. Let's come back to it. Well, no. It'll take us away from the content. We'll okay. come back to it later. Okay, well, how do we get from the Council of Chalcedon, St. Patrick, to we got to do a little recap of 53? Not all of 53, just the Council of Chalcedon. Um Frank has not recently listened to 53. I did listen to 53. And in it, we went over, we were trying to set the scene for the council. And to some degree, we're going to reset, we're going to review all of that. Okay. But in listening to it, the things to carry into our discussion right up front is that there are differing theological viewpoints. So the actual... What is the theology? What is the belief system? There's different politics involved. There's different geography involved, like which area of the empire are you in and how does it go? There's different uh, personnel involved. What bishop, you know, like uh, this bishop, we want this bishop to have more power than that bishop. So we're going to go with their idea or that one thinks he has a lot of power. So I want him on my side. So, so it's not as strictly, so we can get into and will the theological viewpoints, but it's not a strictly theological dynamic here, right? It's not like all these folks just came together at this council and they're all just very intent on figuring out the theological truth of the matter because they really like, yeah, I want to get to the truth, but I hope, my side wins. Yeah. So or what I would hope, be a good analogy? I mean, what, what year did this take place? Five fifty one. Five four. No, we're in the fours. Four fifty one. Four fifty one. And it took place where? At Chalcedon. It's why it's called the Council of Chalcedon. Chalcedon is right outside. Just let me get into it. I think that we'll be, and, and I think that if we get into it a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> we will okay. see. Okay. They, then you can maybe come up with an analogy that works. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to let you get into it. <laughs> Thank you. So, do you remember what Nicaea was? The Council of Nicaea? Yes, I believe I do. I mean, there was a couple of them. There was Constantine involved in that? Yes. Did he set it up? He called it, yeah. And he was basically talking about the... 
the issue was the divinity of Christ. Yeah. Okay. So what was the one before that about who can be Christians? <laughs> I don't know why you have that in your head. That came up before. There's not one about who can be Christians. That would the council at Nicaea was really the first major council. Okay. Well, I don't know why. What was the thing that Barnabas and Paul went and they talked and they had the oh oh the Jerusalem council. Thank you. That was in the Bible. Well, okay then. It is a council in the Bible. Okay. I'm talking about after we come out into the early church. Mm, okay. Okay. Mm. Which that was the very early early church. So that's good. Thank you, Frank. Thank you for calling me on that. Maybe it was. You know, that's interesting when they count. Oh, they're called ecumenical councils, which means the gathering of bishops, which the Jerusalem Council, we didn't really have bishops yet. Okay. Okay. It was just Barnabas and Paul going back to the disciples, the elders in Jerusalem and getting their questions answered. Okay. And it was about do to what degree do you have to practice Judaism if you are a Christian? Right. So I don't mean to distract. I just wanted to get the order right. We got the Jerusalem Council, Council of Nicaea. Yeah, and they're and w- even though they're both using the word council, they're different in the sense that the Jerusalem Council is called that now because that's just the name we gave to Paul and Barnabas going back to Jerusalem to talk to the because they were actually being counseled. Well, that group of leaders in Jerusalem was seen in as as an authority. How that is similar to these ecumenical councils is the gathering of bishops coming together to make a decision is seen as an authority. Okay. okay. I got you. The Council of Nicaea was back, I'm thinking 423, but in the same century um, and dealt with the divinity of Christ. And that issue was decided that Jesus was fully God. Okay. And the church as a whole came to acknowledge the significance of of that and to also realize that if Christ Christ needed to be fully divine to be able to impart the salvation of the Bible that the Bible says he brings to us okay but as that truth was being established throughout the church over those years after Nicaea the church was also asking well then what should it think about the person of Christ the humanity of Christ how did Jesus's full divinity relate to the humanity of his earthly existence. So, so much focus had gone on the full divinity that now they're question, they're asking questions. Well, what does that say about the humanity? Okay. His human side. Yeah. His human side, his, his earthly existence, like his divinity would be that he existed with God before he came to earth and he exists with God now, but, so what was happening when he was, how do we define his humanity and how does that exist with his divinity? Okay. They're trying to explain that. So in the council of Nicaea, no, after the, after council, the council of Nicaea, the church is starting to realize that this is an issue. Right. So different theologians, different bishops, different people in different places are coming up with their answer to that question. Mm-hmm. So in Alexandria, which was, remember, a town in Egypt. Egypt. That bishop and those folks, they had the view that Christ was one nature made up of flesh and the divine intelligence, one nature, um, which gets that view gets accused of denying the human center and consciousness of Jesus. Like it's too focused on the divinity. All right. Much of the opposition to this view came from another place, Antioch. Okay. Which I'm pretty sure 
Antioch is around the area of, uh, oh, I'm not going to speak out on that, but it's, it's up the Mediterranean north of the land of Israel. Okay. Um, so mo the opposition to that came from Antioch, but a lot of that was political too, because those bishops had long been in contention with the bishops of Alexandria and of Constantinople for being primary in the Eastern Roman Empire for having the most influence they wanted. So it's almost like it would be natural that they would disagree. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Antioch taught that Christ always was completely human as well as completely God, that Christ possessed two full natures, one human and the other divine. And that initiated a great eruption of controversy that spread over the whole first half of the fifth century. Okay. So this whole, so it's like really different. Now, then also another issue that comes into it, the Bishop of Constantinople came up and preached a sermon that denied that Mary was the bearer of God. Since Jesus was human, fully human, then he asserted that Mary didn't give birth to God. Now the, um, she gave birth to the human Jesus whose humanity, though united to the divine logos or word, must be understood as separate and distinct from his divine nature. And the word the theotokos, Greek word, means God-bearer. And that word, when you hear that, is referring to the concept of Mary as the mother of God, mm -hmm. which is strongly held in the Eastern Church and was a strongly held belief of revering Mary as the mother of God. So for this Bishop of Constantinople to preach, she was not the mother of God because they're holding to this view that Jesus was of two natures and that she bore the human. That was offensive to a lot of people. Okay. And later on, we're going to be talking some more about that concept of Mary as the mother of God. Only bring it up right now to say that was just another thing thrown into the fray at this council. So yeah. there's the, struggling for supremacy among the bishops and the locations. There's these two different ideas of Jesus's human nature and then also throwing in Mary's nature. Yeah. Well, yeah. What we can call Mary, what yeah. we can say about Mary. So there's something about Mary. <laughs> there you go. Sadly, the battle that followed between all these soon became personal and Episcopal as well as theological. Okay, that's the point no. we're making. All of that's coming in. Sometimes inadvertently, at other times with forethought malice. Thinking about it ahead of time. Alexandria and Antioch competed to exert controlling influence over Constantinople, which was vitally important due to the presence of the Roman emperor being in Constantinople. This sounds like a mess. This sounds like a hot mess. It, that's exactly right. So, to heighten what was already a contentious situation, all three... Of these major and eastern seas. Now, seas, S-E-E-S, -E -E are the names of these locations of churches. Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople. So, all three of them were competing against each other to elicit support of the Bishop of Rome, who was traditionally recognized as the key church leader in the West. At this time, that bishop is who? We've talked Leo. about him a lot. Right. 
So I read that he was called Leo the Great. Yeah. So these these intra Eastern and East West circumstances explain why intense debate over the nature of Christ's person spilled over into intense ecclesiastical competition. So this is okay. Well, there's a lot going on. Yeah. It's a mess. So they appealed to the emperor for another council to rectify the situation. So they go to the emperor. They this. say, we appeal to the emperor for a council. Now, here's where it gets even more confusing. Now, before you say how it gets more confusing, I'm painting a picture in my mind that what you're explaining, the three C's or the three churches, Alexandria, yeah, C's is a better way to say it because it was one church. And Antioch and, and Constantinople. Is this primarily, if you look in history books, kind of like the civilized world that they knew in the 4th or 5th century? I mean, is there other stuff going on? We'll that... get to that a little bit later on. We'll look at a map again. Um, but as we've already mentioned, this is the beginning of the invasions. So the Western Empire is crumbling and the roman empire was the center of the civilized world there are other empires that arise i can't quote you right off the bat when they exactly show up on but the scene in, in history if you looked at it in in middle school high school college oh, yeah. level history simplified this is what's happening if you're looking in middle school and high school for sure you get to college level US. yes in college level you might be exploring more the entire globe Okay. But there's not anything near this. I just was, didn't. I just was wondering if if this was just picking apart a little piece of history. No, no. Okay. All right. Well, and that's part of the reason of I'm I'm always thinking. What is the point? What is the point of putting this in here? Yeah. And it's because it influences from now on. Okay. Yeah. And so we need to talk about it. So yes, it is something that's now. If you're doing a big overview course, you might not talk about Chalcedon, but things happen. And this sets the tone for things that are going to come back up. So, so we yeah. want to talk about it. So they appeal to the emperor, which, remember, Constantine called Nicaea. So they're going, okay, emperor, you come in and sell the deal. Well, enter the emperor Marcion along with more complications. Because Marcion had only just become the emperor. And we mentioned this at the end of our last episode. On July 28th, 450, the previous ruler, Theodosius II, who had been a strong supporter of Alexandria, was thrown from his horse and killed. Hmm. Okay? Theo. Hmm. Theodosius's sister, Pultria, hmm. however, was an ally of Leo and also supported the Christology that was more like the Antiochene, the Antioch position of two natures. Antiochene? Yeah. Okay. That's taken... Antioch and making it possessive. Antiochite. Mm -hmm. Well, we got an Antioch right up the road here we in Nashville. We do. We say, what's the Antiochian position? <laughs> yeah, you done took the Antiochian <laughs> position on that. Okay. When she, when Pultria <clears throat> became the power behind the throne because her brother just died, she mm -hmm. chose Marcion to be her consort and therefore he became the new emperor. So she got together with Marcion. Uh -huh. He's the new emperor because she's the one with the power because our brother was the previous emperor. And as yeah. we know, there was never a clear line of secession. That's just the way it worked this time. Yeah. I have a question about her. You think she was like timid or scared of confrontation? <laughs> no. Like a chicken? No. So. You, did you get the connection? Poultryan. <laughs> P 
P-U-L-C-H-R-I-A. I'm just hearing Pult- it. I'm just hearing Pultria. it. So okay, thinking, just hang okay, with me. Okay, go ahead. When she became the power behind the throne and chose Marcion to be her consort, consort, therefore the new emperor, her opinions tipped the balance against the Alexandria position. So now it's tip. So where before with the previous emperor, we call for a council is going toward Alexandria, right? This just sounds very political. Exactly. But now we got a new emperor with a little influence from the sister, a lot of influence. And now it's leaning toward Antioch, which is kind of more like Leo and she's friends with Leo. Anyway, all of this imperial maneuvering became intensely relevant to the history of Christianity when Marcion called for a council to settle the question once and for all. So they're going to settle it once and for all. Yeah, here we go. Mm. On May 23rd, 451, the Roman Emperor Marcion summoned an ecumenical council of bishops that he hoped would, quote, end disputations and settle the true faith more clearly and for all time, end quote. Wow. May 23rd. So now they're into the calendar dates. Yeah. But how long has that been happening? Go back and listen to episode 20 and maybe we will mm-hmm. remember. Okay, thank you. Um, so Marcion calls his council and hopes to end. Now, remember, we talked about the emperors were all about having Christianity united because that united the empire better. Like we don't want everybody fussing. We want, but these men, these leaders, these bishops are going to decide. Right. So here we go. Theology. Yeah. Which is, which is the way it has been done. Back to the Council of Jerusalem, back to the Council of Nicaea, back to, you know, you get together. It's not like one person just says this is the way it is. The, mm. the leaders of the church get together to decide. I so wish, Okay, this is, this is good. For those of you that are in a church right now, uh, well, how about... <laughs> oh, my gosh. No. I can tell by the look on the face we're fixing well, to get in trouble. No, it would, this would require... I don't know if this is going to apply to many listeners. To, of this podcast, but it would have it would have helped me decades ago when I was in the middle of a church that was trying to wonder how to make decisions, and you had one person that said, "This is how we're doing it," and everybody said, "No, no, I think we need a team of people." And he said, "No, no, no, my say is the way. I say the final." I would have liked to have said, "Hey, what about the Council of Jerusalem? What about the Council of Nicaea? What about uh, yeah?" And just said, "That's his, so, you're not." So this is how it applies: learn your history, read your Bible, mm-hmm. bring it up. Read okay. your Bible, pastor. Oh, okay. my gosh. Okay. So the council uh, met at Chalcedon just across the Bosporus from Marcion's capital, Constantinople. So there you know, it's right across the Bosporus Strait. About 520 bishops attended. This, might be, this was a great conference. 520, all but four from the eastern section of the Roman Empire. So all of them except for four out of 520 were from the eastern section. Two were from North Africa. Uh-huh. And two who exerted an influence far out of proportion to their number were legates, representatives, legates, however you say that word, from the Bishop of Rome, Pope Leo. Only two. Only two from Leo, two from North Africa, which is where Alexandria is. And, and 400 and something. 516 okay. from Eastern. But we've already talked about, and we'll mention again, there were more Christians in the Eastern part of the empire. Hmm. You know, that was the majority. You but, think they had a good, do you think they had a good agenda? Maybe they had conference space, maybe a continental breakfast before they got into it. Maybe. So keep going. Much was at stake when Leo entered the fray. 
it's helpful to highlight a few important contrasts here. Okay. So now we're just going to step to the side for a minute and talk about why it's a big deal that Leo's entering into this. Okay. One, where the Roman Western mindset was more concrete, practical, and legal, which we're more familiar with. That's a way in which we can see that we're descendants of the Western part of the Roman Empire. The Eastern mindset gravitated toward abstraction, passion, and speculation. Hmm. A really good argument, beautiful words, spoken from the heart, dreamy ideas, talking about things in the abstract. Which are not bad. No, it's just different. So that's what they're saying. So Leo is bringing this concrete, practical, legal perspective. The Roman world used Latin. The East used Greek. That's a big deal. Tertullian, remember we talked about him a little bit, the second century Western lawyer had not thought it worthwhile to consider what Jerusalem, the Christian faith, had to do with Athens, the traditions of speculative philosophy. So Jerusalem represented the Christian faith. Athens represented uh, speculative philosophy. The Western lawyer Tertullian didn't think it was worth considering what they had to do with each other. But in contrast, his Eastern contemporary at the same time, Clement of Alexandria, had promoted the Christian study of Greek speculative thought as a useful exercise for the church. So whereas Clement of Alexandria, would you encourage you to st- study philosophy and to learn to think through those speculative thoughts that would he would find that helpful could be helpful for the church tertullian would say what did they have to do with each other right so it's a different perspective these differences were more tendencies of intellectual disposition than out and out conflicts of doctrine so it's not that they believe different things it was just the way they chose to think about things was different but they had continued to develop from the time of Tertullian and Clement, and so there was becoming more and more of a difference. By the 5th century, it was clear that the West respected doctrinal formulas like the Nicene Creed for the way they ended debates and settled questions. Let's settle it. That's a Western thought. Let's settle it. But in the East, by contrast, such doctrinal formulations had come to be regarded as incitements. They were just steps to broader, deeper, and more profound Theological speculation. Which is not bad, but you're not going <laughs> to... This is a Western mind saying exactly. this. You're not going to exactly. get much done. That, it, see, the, the whole idea of productivity is a Western concept. So That's going to come are, out over what time. What is your content that you've scoured to bring kind of this to I'm us today? I'm pretty sure most of this is coming from uh, Turning Points, the Turning Points book by Mark Knoll. Okay. Um, not all of it, but most of this part right here in particular. So... So you're appreci- so I'm glad you're seeing the difference, all right? So it was like rather than settling it, it just gave us a good stopping a good summary, but we could continue to th- reflect and go further and all that kind of stuff. Um so for Leo to the inner the largely eastern debate. So everybody else is eastern. You got 516 yeah, but in Leo eastern. Leo is the one that's been making stuff happen for a while. Well, we've highlighted what he's been doing, okay? Yes, so for Leo to enter the largely Eastern debates over the nature of Christ's person was to bring not just another opinion, but also a notably different cast of mind to bear on the critical issue. He's the one going, let's think about this a different way. Okay, so after, check this out, 15 arduous sessions from October 8th to November 10th. Mm. He called for the council in May, right? Mm -hmm. They started meeting in October and met from 15 times between the 8th of October and the 10th of November. 
Well, 15 hours. 15 arduous sessions. 15, 15 different sessions. sessions. So you said they met 15 times. Yes. 15 sessions. Yeah. Okay. So after that, they succeeded in finding a formula that satisfactorily answered the momentous question under dispute. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. But, so they came up with a, a, a but, form, yeah. but I want to say they were using the Bible and using the history of biblical reflection. And it's interesting. So they so even though all these other things were involved, it wasn't like at any cost I'm going to push my perspective. They had different perspectives, but they were arguing from a biblical each of them. Well, and the fact that they were able to actually get to a end. Yeah. Come to an end, come to an agreement. Well, we'll see. Well, we'll if see. agreement might be a little bit of a stretch of a word, but they came they satisfactorily answered the mo- momentous question. So, after intense deliberations at Castledon, Marcion himself read out the critical formulation on October 25th, 451. So now I'm going to read. Okay, so this is words from the 5th century. Can we have some music for this, please, producer? For the, okay. I'm just kidding. So it's not short, not tremendously long, not short, but that's what I'm reading, so hang with me. But would it be more fun if I read it? Like, and then It might be more fun, but I want you to get some idea of what it's saying. Oh. It could be distracting if you've read it. I don't think. And it might be distracting if I read it. I disagree, but So following, here it is. Quote, so following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial homoousios with the father as regards his divinity of the same substance. We remember that's what that means. And the same consubstantial homoousios with us as regards his humanity of the same essence. Like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us, and for our salvation from Mary, begotten from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, Theotokos, as regards his humanity, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being, hypostasis. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the Creed of the Fathers, i.e. the Nicene Creed, handed it down to us, end quote. So he, it took him, okay. I get what they're saying, and it's probably because that's what I've believed my whole life. Exactly, which is why we're talking about it. Because but I have a hard time comprehending what it would not be. Like, how could it be two if different you're, people? If, if you, well, and that's, well, let's keep going. I see what you're saying. And I think that a lot of that is because we have become accepting and comfortable with this definition. And it makes sense to us. 
but it was not a concept before this. Like they didn't know how to explain that. So let's go on and talk about it. The Chalcedonian definition represented a delicate balancing act. Its assertions about, quote, one and the same Christ, as well as the series of negations. Did you hear those negations in there without confusion, without change, without Mm -hmm. division, without separation? Those things lean toward Alexandria, toward the idea of one. Mm. The definition acknowledged that Alexandria's insistence on the unity of Christ's person was entirely correct. Yet, at the same time, the strong emphasis on the two natures of Christ reflected the direct influence of Leo and leaned more toward Antioch. Even while insisting on the integrity of Christ's person, it was necessary to maintain his full humanity as well as his full divinity. So it's... I'm I'm thinking here, sorry for the pause... One person and two natures. Fully human and fully divine in one person. Yeah. That in itself is a statement of faith because you're not going to be able to explain how that works. Well. Do you see what I mean? You you see what I'm saying? There's all these questions that come up if we want to get, which is not the purpose of this Well, the only way that I would explain how it works is that a, a, a human without sin Right. So that's the point. Yes. Um, but aware of sin. Yeah. And, and we can talk, we can go down that road too. And I, I will say this, that is very, I hear in that definition, a very biblically consistent definition. Yeah. Okay. The little bit about Mary bearer of God, that's thrown in there to appease the people that that's important to. I kind of feel like, okay, you know, and, and, and that's because it doesn't hurt anything. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because by it. the definition, they're not saying, oh, she bore God. She was greater than God. They're just saying Jesus was fully man and fully God. So in a way you can refer to Mary as the bearer of God. So yeah, we're not holding her up as something bigger, better, greater, we're set, that's a whole another conversation that we'll get into later in history. But anyway, but so so we've got this and it was this balancing act and here we are and they reached a conclusion. But despite Emperor Marcion's hope, this formula did not define the church's doctrinal life, quote, for all time. And why not? We're going to talk about that. Nor did it bring an end to the acrimonious disputes that had led to the council. Nevertheless, its deliberations were immensely significant. So, Hmm. in the East, the definition of Chalcedon generated continuing disputes. The determined opposition to the formula arose in Egypt in particular, but throughout. So, more generally, to answer in more general terms than just Egypt, Eastern opposition to Chalcedon moved in two different directions. Now here we're going to mention, we haven't talked about, uh, we will spend some time talking about the difference of the church in the East and the church in the West as we get a little bit further down the road. Okay. When there's Mm -hmm. a little clearer divide between the two. Okay. We don't have that clear divide as we just saw in this council. You can tell there's a little bit of divide because the vast majority of those folks were from the East. But also we know the West is not, it's fallen apart. It would be really hard for a bishop 
in at this point with all of these tribes and invasions for a bishop in in Britain to get to 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 Constantinople to Chalcedon that wasn't the case with things were a little bit held together 30 years earlier at Nicaea and and where was Chalcedon actually located again? across the Bosporus from Constantinople so essentially in the east yeah essentially at Constantinople across the river across okay. the strait okay so there's going to be a larger divide between east and west and we know today that there we'll we'll talk about how we got there but we have the catholic church and we have the eastern orthodox church and we have these orthodox churches that are over in the east so a lot you will hear about different kinds of orthodox churches and a lot of those differences not a lot most of them if not the central ones come from chalcedon they fall away from this decision. So we already said there's still a lot of disputes, particularly in Egypt, which would be the Alexandrian, right? So to make it more general than just that, the Eastern opposition moved in kind of two different ways. One way, the Oriental Orthodox Church. Now, these are the names of what it's called now, okay? So at the time, right after Chalcedon, there wasn't an Oriental Orthodox Church. But what became the Oriental Orthodox Church were the people who left Chalcedon with this opinion. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the Oriental Orthodox Church followed the Alexandrian trajectory and insisted that talk of two natures violated the integrity of Christ's one person. That Christ can't be one person and have two natures. That's not possible. Okay. They disagreed with that. So sometimes these churches are called monophysite because they hold to Christ's single nature. All right. Although they don't refer to that term themselves. But when you, you hear people say, oh, that's a monophysite. I'm sure you hear that every day. I hear it all the time. But if you were to read I, that. I, when I was at Kroger or, earlier. The, <laughs> right beside the hot dog truck. No. In the car. no, I was checking out and they said, are these monophysites yours? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I, those were just on the conveyor belt. So monophysite would be the idea that two natures can't be in one person. All right. And so they focus on Christ's single nature. Um, the, so that's the Oriental Orthodox Church, as well as the Coptic Church in Egypt, the Armenian, Syrian, and Ethiopian Orthodox Churches maintained that general position. Still today. Today. So that's kind of what created those churches, was this splitting off after Chalcedon saying, we can't buy into that. And then, so that one place was the Oriental Orthodox Church. Another place is the Coptic Church in Egypt, which there is a, a Coptic Egyptian church here in Nashville. And we, we've met some okay. people that worship So they there. still believe it's two people? It's two? They would say, no, they it. would say it's one, that, that one nature of Jesus can't be, there can't be two natures in one person. There's only one nature. Exactly what they say about that nature, I don't know. Okay. They're, I think the argument against them is that it's denying a little bit of the humanity of Christ. Okay? Okay. But I don't know. And and this is probably worth saying here, Frank. You can meet somebody. Okay, I'm just going to make something up. Um, you can go study about, I'm just going to say Mormonism. You go study about Mormonism and you know all these things and you've studied the roots of Mormonism and you've read their statements of faith and you've read all this stuff about them. And then you meet a Mormon. Does that mean that that Mormon that you talk to knows all that stuff, believes all that stuff? And probably not. Just like 
you and your church might or might not know everything that you're, it depends on how active you are, how involved you are, how much research you've done. So, folks, if y'all meet a Coptic Christian, <laughs> you're going to start talking about the one nature, the two nature. I can't tell you how much they're actually going to know about that. OK, particularly 1500 years later. Yeah, I don't know how that all played out. All right. But that was the essential thing that led to the to the birth of that group. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were all all of us following Jesus, all of us coming from the disciples, all of us coming to Christ through that strain. But then, hey, we we don't see how there can be two natures in one person. And so we're focusing on one nature, right? In the other direction, the church of the East or the Assyrian church of the East followed the trajectory of Antioch. This position agrees that Christ is one person, but also holds that, that he retained humanity and divinity in two substance. Instead of being made of one substance, he has two substances. Members of this church recently suffered the full weight of anti-Christian violence in Iraq. Um, which that was this book, I think was published in 2014. So you would have to go back and look that up, but that's the Assyrian church of the East. And I'm thinking, I remember the news story about that, about how they were persecuted. And I think it was during the ISIS going on in Iraq, but I didn't go and check that news story to make sure that was still this group, but that's a small group. Whereas these other churches would be a little bit larger groups but not near as large as either the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. The intramural theological quarreling that followed Chalcedon in the Eastern part of the Christian world had one particularly unfortunate long-term consequence. So here again is where it's important to understand the history. All right. That quarreling that went on in the eastern part of the Christian world, when compounded by the acrimony between the churches that, that accepted Chalcedon and those that did not, so we've already constituted one of the factors that weakened Christianity in that region and so prepared the way for the triumph of Islam, sweeping out of Arabia in the mid seventh century. So when we get a couple hundred years down the road, we're going to be talking about the triumph of Islam and Islam being born and how rapidly it spreads. And this author is saying the fact that these churches were fussing and couldn't come together as one weakened Christianity in the area. So when some other dudes come in with this clear message about one God, it, it opens the way for that. I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm interested to hear about that. Okay. So in, so that's in the East. In the West, by contrast, there was almost immediate satisfaction with Chalcedon. It was also supported, although with more disputing required, by the Eastern Orthodox churches. So as I said, in the West, which ends up becoming the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches, there was a lot of support. The agreement was not that the statement would stand as the last word about the delicate mystery lying at the heart of the Christianity itself. That's an Eastern description the delicate mystery lying at the heart of Christianity itself. So the, so the, the agreement wasn't, oh, yeah, that's the final word, in the way that it would have been the final word in the West, because as we said, we want it settled, we want it done, we want to check that box, taken care of. But that instead that it had charted a course for fruitful theological reflection on that life-giving mystery. A way, and I think this might come up again in a minute in my notes, but I'm going to put it in here. A way that another author or several authors, as I was investigating Chalcedon, described it was Chalcedon gave us limits. Okay, like we didn't it doesn't try to fully explain how all of it works, but it says to be 
biblically consistent with the teachings that we know come from the apostles and from Jesus, it has to fall within here. Christ, one person, two natures. Not no one nature, one person, you know, not mm-hmm. outside of that, inside of that. Now, how it all works inside of that, all we're saying is this is what the Bible says about, this is, this is what, what our teaching seems to say about, yeah. about how it works. Okay. Um, the dense interconnections at Chalcedon between doctrine and authority, however, meant that not all was settled by this council, even for the West. Grateful as he was that Chalcedon followed his writings, Leo was not pleased with the other conclusions of the council, especially its 28th canon, like I'm sure it had notes, which supported the dignity of the Archbishop of Constantinople in terms that he felt should be reserved for himself. Hmm. So it's list, lifting up the dignity of the Archbishop of Constantinople. And we know Leo is already pushing for <clears throat> papal supremacy, papal <coughs> primacy so over the, all the um, other bishops. Okay, what, what was the... What was the reverence of the Archbishop of Constantinople? What, what was that? What, why did that matter? What, what was the well? I think debate. The, <coughs> the phrasing is first among equals. Okay, but people wanted to be the first among equals. Okay. And 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 Leo might not even go so far to say I don't even know if I would call it equals. You know, um, just first. <coughs> And then there's the others. But what they're doing is, is raising, I think Constantinople was either just above or just below Leo in the list. Or, but there were some words to describe it that Leo felt should have been reserved for himself. Okay. Um, though Chalcedon largely settled the doctrinal issue, it did not bridge the growing divide between East and West. Historians, now this is interesting. Historians commonly see the differences in mindset and views of ecclesiastical authority that Chalcedon highlighted a strong portents of the eventual split between the Eastern and Western churches. So another reason we discuss Chalcedon is so that we can see here it's starting. We can starting to see the tension. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Council of Chalcedon was an important event and a critical turning point in the history, both because it clarified Orthodox Christian teaching and also because of the way that it accomplished that clarification. As it had at the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, which was another council after Nicaea, the church at Chalcedon took up questions of ultimate importance concerning the person and work of Christ. In the broader sweep of church history, Chalcedon showed that it was possible through, through judicious use of one's, dom, the dominant form of thought of that particular era, which at this era would have been the Hellenistic Greek way of thinking, but through judicious use, careful use of that way of thought, you could define critical aspects of Christianity as handed down through the scriptures. Moreover, Chalcedon showed that such necessary theological work can succeed despite an environment of brutal ecclesiastical strife and despite the reality of cultural division within the church itself. So even though you had this ecclesiastical struggling between the bishops, dissension within the church itself, it was still able to take from a culture that was Semitic and Hebrew and Aramaic and translate the principles into a Hellenistic way. And so it it gives great hope for the future that that 
text and teaching from this ancient time can be relevant to the present and to the future. Well, and that's that has, what I said a minute ago, is that it was impressive that they came to a result. Yeah. We're, we're running. How close are we on time? We're, we're running long. Uh, almost there. Of, um, it was first, it was theologically important because it balanced the statement. The balanced statement reflected the main themes of the New Testament, which was something that I already mentioned. And then, And, I did, and what I've already, here's another way to word what I just said when I was talking about the Hebrew thing. Chalcedon may be said to have marked the successful translation of the Christian faith out of its Semitic milieu, milieu, where words and concepts were shaped primarily by the revelation of the Old Testament, into the Hellenistic milieu, where words and concepts were shaped primarily by traditions of Greek thought and Roman thought. So that's just another way to, to say that. Chalcedon marks a final triumphant stage in a process whose beginnings can be glimpsed in the New Testament. In Acts 11.20, we read that, quote, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, which are Greek cities, went to Antioch. Well, they're not. They're Hebrew cities. Went to Antioch being a Greek city. Chalcedon represents the completion of the work begun by those unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene who carried the gospel across the border from a Jewish conceptual world to a Hellenistic conceptual world. Chalcedon proved that the heart of the gospel message could be preserved even when that message was put into a new conceptual language. That's exciting, right? It reminded one of the great turning point documents of, it remained one of the great, turning point documents of history because the statement faithfully it represented the reality about which it speaks. Christians can live in the world and also for the glory of God. I see what you're saying, yeah. One person, two natures. The fact of one person can coexist with the fact of two natures. That That's our life. Yeah. As followers well, it's interesting of Jesus. That we're, we're talking about history, but we're also talking about theology in this episode. Yeah, because... Which we haven't really done. Well, okay, pause. Let me finish this sentence and I'll come back to that. Because it really happened, as the Apostle John wrote, that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, right? John one fourteen. So, yes, there's a lot of theology in Chalcedon and... And we could talk about it from a strictly political sense, but but that wouldn't give the full view, because there what what we're trying to say through history through the eyes of faith is there is a truth and a teaching that is moving throughout history, and we want to trace that throughout history as we look at the events of history. Okay, so yeah. Chalcedon was both a theological coming together movement statement declaration definition at the same time that it was an event that made a difference in what happened in the west and what happened in the east and 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 so it it's going to make a difference we'll see as we move forward in history how these areas that now can communicate with each other become separated because of many factors can't communicate with each other. So this church grows up in Egypt that looks different than this church that grows up over here or this church that grows up over there. And so this helps us understand where those differences come yeah, from. Yeah. Um, we still haven't gotten, it'll be a, a, a few more episodes, a few hundred years when we get to the impact. Well, I think we're starting to see it 
that the Christian church has had on history as a whole. And until we get there, you can't really understand what difference this makes. Yeah. Right. Right. And so one more thing I want to say is a summary thing, and then we'll, we'll stop for this episode. Um, I watched a really good short video on a teaching on the council at Chalcedon and what it came out. And I love the summary that the speaker had at the end. This is from a video that was put out by uh, Gordon Cromwell Theological School. And they said the first four ecumenical councils, which we this is not a class. This is not a podcast on theology. So we haven't talked about all of those. But Nicaea was one and Chalcedon was the fourth one. And those are the ones after those four the other ecumenical councils become they're they're not as well agreed on as those first four throughout Christianity and we as we can see Chalcedon wasn't always but the important thing to remember is that in all four of those salvation is the primary issue because we're thinking about how can Christ have complete accomplished salvation if he wasn't fully god or if he wasn't fully man or whatever we're discussing in that thing secondly Another primary point is God came down to save as our substitute. That was a truth that was not up for debate that everything had to be explained around. And then thirdly, we can shape our language by limiting it. It was helping put up. Somebody gave the example of like bumpers when you go bowling and they put up the bumpers for the little kids. Mm -hmm. It helps you learn how to bowl. And so we're limiting so we can get into the shaping of it. All right. So I hope that's helpful. I hope you've learned something. Um, listener, I hope you've found it interesting. It'd be interesting to, if you happen to be a Christian, a believer, it'd be interesting to go back and look into what your particular um, denomination, set of beliefs, creed, how that relates to Chalcedon. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, there's a lot in there. So it's, it's theology. It's what do you believe and how did, did the church come to that decision and and how it, like you said, it, it's crucial for us to understand that so we can see other things that happen afterwards that we can refer back to. Yeah, and I, I want to go back to what you said about your little example of the person saying, hey, I make the final decision and it would be nice to have a group of people. What I like about it is despite all these going ons, there was a group consensus that was consistent with Scripture. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. There's, I see that as a spiritual guiding hand as we move forward. Yeah, for sure. You know? Well, we've run long, and I said earlier that I was going to find out about this thing that I brought up about the number nine and episode 54, and I don't have time to go there. So we will talk about that when we get to okay. episode 55. But I want to go back to the thing. This is just real quick. The thing you mentioned in 53, you know, we had the Bigfoot sticker. And you insisted since we'd had the Bigfoot sticker that we needed to talk about leprechauns. And what did that have to do with St. Patrick and with with, uh, the Trinity and the clovers? Yeah. And so I looked up leprechauns are just associated with St. Patrick because they both trace their history to Ireland. Uh, Leprechauns originated from Ireland was initially, it it, it was, leprechaun was just a... um, so anything that has to do with Ireland can now be part of St. Patrick's yeah. Day. Because of these old fables, leprechauns have been associated with Irish culture for centuries. Probably even further back than St. Patrick. Mm. So it, it commercialization. doesn't have... It, the commercialization of St. Patrick's Day. It doesn't have the cool thing like the Trinity. And Same the thing with why Santa Claus related to Christmas. Yeah. Because somebody handed out gifts. Cause some oh, we're going to get to him too. 
Santa Claus. Saint Nicholas. All right. Um, <laughs> have a good rest of the day, morning, evening, tomorrow, whatever, whenever you're listening to it. We'll see you on 55. That was been 54. This has been Frank, Reigns Jr., and producer Wes. Be careful out there. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe, or follow wherever you stream your podcast. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link in our bio at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com. Thanks for listening.